Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oates. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. We're glad that you tuned in to us this morning to talk about the benefits of cooperatives and how they help communities and potentially uh, could help you if you hear some information that you on this program that would cause you to seek out a cooperative to do business with. And this morning, we have Mr. William Nelson on the phone. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Should I call you William or Bill or? Uh, William is uh, a common name, so William helps uh, reduce confusion. Okay, good, good. You have a very impressive resume, sir. Well, thank you. <laughs> How did you get started? You've got so much to talk about, so let's just start from the beginning. How did you get started in this cooperative business? I grew up on a farm in central Minnesota, and it's a farm, very, it was a very traditional farm back in the 60s and 70s, what's uh, called a century farm. So been in the family for over 100 years now. But the interesting part of it was my grandparents, both on my mother and father's side, had immigrated and or their grandparents was sort of a combination had immigrated from Europe. And when they settled in the Midwest, they, like a lot of other farmers, got involved in forming cooperatives as a way to succeed, really, you know, uh, dairy and rural electric, uh, various types of cooperatives. So they were very involved in starting the cooperatives. But in my father's generation, you know, which I was growing up on the farm, Mm -hmm. a lot of that direct connection had been lost. We did business there, but we also shopped around. You know, in retrospect, it's a very common problem that co-ops have, at least in agriculture, in which, you know, the founders are very energized around solving a problem. But when it passes on to another generation, it can easily get lost. Anyway, the point of the story is that I grew up as very active in the farm, uh, active in school and FFA, but learned absolutely nothing about cooperatives. And it wasn't until I went to college and then continued my career, um, both as a college student and in the University of Minnesota, and then over the years uh, in my work now at CHS that I I got very, very involved. The point of the story is that education is extremely important and cannot be taken for granted. So I guess basically I could, I think I could say my whole career has been focused on trying to help people understand through education the value of the cooperative business model. Education is extremely important. Uh, you just hit on the fifth principle of cooperatives, and that's the education, training, and information, which is my favorite of the seven principles. And one of the reasons I've fallen in love with this cooperative model is because education. Being an African-American growing up in Bluefield, West Virginia, I knew nothing about cooperatives because yeah, yeah. my grandfather was on in the coal mines and my father was on the railroad, and those two industries did not have anything called cooperative. Yep. They were very capitalistic in nature which is one of the problems of West Virginia, which is the whole side story, that most of the money left the state. 
to the shareholders. So my grandfather, father, mother just really instilled in us, get an education, get an education, get an education. But I heard nothing about cooperatives yeah. and all of that education. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's from from what I understand, I, I think that's true quite true probably for your for that area of the country, but but it's also the case in a lot of other areas as well. We in the upper Midwest, I guess I feel are fortunate in that there is a, much more of a cooperative tr- tradition and understanding, and again, largely because of agriculture and, and the immigrants from Europe who brought it with them or, you know, as they're trying to figure out how to uh, get started and survive in farming, the, uh, the agriculture cooperative business model really uh, was was essential for their success. Problem is you have to make sure the next generation learns what you learned. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, so your grandparents started it. It kind of got lost with your parents. You didn't get a whole lot of it at home. It sounds like you got it in school at college. This- yeah, you know, and I, if, if you can indulge me in a quick story. Sure. Uh, it's a true story, but we were very self-sufficient on the farm, and by the time I was 17, 18, I could run the farm. I got very interested in food uh, issues, which I am to this day, decided that rather than continuing to farm, uh, which I really would have loved to do, I, I felt that I, I really should see what I could do in my career to work on political and economic problems. So I went, got a liberal arts degree, but the the story, uh, the true story is I'm now a freshman in college and realized that I need to buy snow tires for my car, which in the past was very simple. Um, going up on the farm, you went to a to a neighbor who had a huge pile of old tires out back, and you picked one out that <laughs> fit and gave him five bucks and uh, put an inner tube in it, and you're good for a week or so. Well, you know, this, again, was long before the days of the tire shops and Thing. So what I did was I drove from the campus, this is out in a rural town, liberal arts college, and stopped at a gas station, bought some tires, had them installed, paid for them, went on my way. I never stopped back there because it wasn't normally on my way. The following spring, I got a check in the mail for $5. You know, $5 was a lot of money for a college kid back then. What and, year What year uh, are you in? Pardon? What year? Uh, that would have been in 1970. Okay. So anyway, out of curiosity, I got in my car and I went to look for this the address and where the check came from. And lo and behold, it was the gas station where I bought the tires. It said uh, Farmers Union Oil Company or Association. I went in and I asked if the check was any good. They said yes. And I, you know, said, "Why did you send me a check?" And the lady behind the counter, you know, just sort of paused and decided. You know, she could have just brushed it off. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she actually knew the answer. She said, why don't you talk to the manager? So I went in uh, to the manager's office, and again, this is 1970. I'm wearing an, uh, old Army clothes and have long hair and a beard in this <laughs> rural town. And, you know, he's sitting across from me at this big metal desk. I'm sitting on this green couch that was must have been a standard co-op issue back then. You know, had these kind of pipe railings on the end and uh, some kind of vinyl on it so that it cracked in the winter or you stuck to it in the summer. And we sort of had his face off. And uh, anyway, he decided to tell me the story that I had never heard. And it was basically the story of how farmers had gotten together, 
after agriculture started changing in the 1930s and farmers had to buy their energy for the first time. Prior to that, they, they grew it, you know, oats, corn, hay. They had to buy it, and so they formed these buying clubs, which turned into local retail outlets, uh, which in turn bought, uh, formed uh, what we now would call a regional co-op. I had never heard this, mm-hmm. and again, it's you know part of the legacy. Anyway, he came to the part about the $5, and he said, you must have bought something from us. And I said, yeah, I bought my tires here. And he said, well, that's your patronage. And I said, what's patronage? Mm-hmm. He said, well, our profits go back to the people who did business here. So, you know, and what a great idea. And, and I, like many people my age, were was pretty cynical about business. But it, it was a complete eye-opener, and in, in retrospect, it's kind of embarrassing to think of that was how I found out. But I've also realized all of the different uh, different points where I could have learned this or, or even when they sold me the tires, they could have explained to me, you know, that what the co-op model was, but they didn't. And then the, the end of the story, which is really interesting, is um, – I, you know, I told this story for many years, and uh, the manager of the co-op once heard me was at a meeting, and he said, you know, there's another part to this that you may not realize. But he said back in the early 70s, uh, the town was very conflicted, uh, you know, over, over the issues mm-hmm. of civil rights to everything. And the board of directors, who were all farmers, were – had this debate at every board meeting about whether or not to let the college students become members. And he said one side would argue saying, hey, they're just here for college. You know, they're hippies. You know, why why should we <laughs> let them in? And the other side would say, well, you never know. Maybe maybe they'll amount to something. something. One day. <laughs> so he said, you must have been there when one side won over the other. And I've never forgotten that lesson because we see in agriculture today a lot of people do not really understand it, um, a lot of young people, and, and obviously a lot of people don't understand cooperatives, but you just never know <laughs> when uh, something you do or say or, you know, maybe this uh, radio radio show or whatever might uh, be the tipping point for someone. And, and I've actually had many of those in my career, and I guess I try to create them for others as well. Was it's the idea is if we can get one person that hears something here, and that's why National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this, that maybe it would cause them to ride back to the to the uh, store that you got your five dollars, get some information, go somewhere, the inquiry there to go somewhere to get information, and maybe it would turn them on to this cooperative model. They'll see when you talk about patronage, that's the third principle of the. Uh, economic model or the cooperative model, and that's members' economic participation. Usually there's some pay-in, but also when there's profit, if you will, when there's money left over at the end of the year, then part of it, depending on the board of directors, part of that money can be given back to the membership. Yeah, you know, and if you fast forward, you know, from from my story there in the, in the early 70s, today I work for the company – we're the largest co-op in the U.S. This year, I think we returned over $500 million in patronage uh, to our mm. owners and members. So, and we still have some of the same issues, you know, in terms of uh, who's eligible. Now, we, you know, we have some requirements, obviously, as any company would, but we keep looking for ways to expand what uh, membership is allowed. We're uh, we have operations in Canada now. We're looking at, you know, is there a way that they could participate uh, 
William, we're going to have to take a, a, a break to get the news and the uh, weather. But we talked about the past, so I do want to fast forward and bring it up. But I would like to take a little bit of time when we come back to talk about some of the things you've done between 1970 and now. And the reason I enjoyed that conversation so much, because I graduated from college in 1970. So from 65 uh-huh. through 70 is when I was in college. And I know the realities of that time period and the uncertainties about growing up into trying to grow up into manhood and dealing with all of the civil rights issues. Right. And we've also had conversation about co-ops and the civil rights issues. But we'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. web at woldcnews.com. Information is power. That's why this program is so good that we're having on WOL because we're giving information that if you take this information and put action to it, you can get power. At Greenbelt Mutual Homes, uh, there's a sign on in their office that says that cooperatives gives people the tools to control their destiny. So with this information that we're giving you today, that William Nelson is on the phone giving you information about his life and how he's been working with cooperatives, if you would take this information and put some power to it, you can have the tools to control your own destiny. William, you were talking about 1970s and the experience with buying tires and getting the patronage back, but we've and you mentioned CHS, and I want to get to CHS, but before the, we do that, I noticed you taught school for a while. In your early years, I did. I uh, after I graduated from college, I did an inter- internship in the Minneapolis schools uh, in the inner city. Which, at the time, the food co-ops were going through a lot of challenges in the area. Um, I mean, if you anyone of your listeners knows the story of the food co-ops in the Twin Cities, it's a fascinating one. I mean, they were having protests about whether or not to serve uh, Coke products in the in the food co-op and. It all it all has evolved into a really marvelous uh, food co-op system here in the Twin Cities. But anywhere from from there, I went on, got a couple more graduate degrees, and then I uh, had an opportunity to teach at the University of Minnesota at a coordinate campus. And I really went there for the explicit purpose of wanting to teach a course on cooperatives, and uh, ended up doing that for 13 years, as well as becoming a tenured faculty and administrator, got involved in a lot of uh, different activities nationally as well as in the state, a lot of work with young farmers, and then had an opportunity to join what was then Senex in about uh, early 90s to run a program on cooperative education, which has evolved into um, about a million and a half dollar competitive grants program each year that we do through the, the CHS Foundation and uh, a lot of major initiatives. But, you know, even though I'm working in corporate citizenship now and philanthropy, I really still see myself as an educator. And through the programs that we fund, not only on education cooperatives, but, uh, you know, a whole range of things that we do with college students, uh, we have a lot of opportunities to uh, get the word out, I guess, and to help support students' learning and faculty. So you're teaching the classes and you got tenure, so you've got a PhD somewhere. I didn't run across that. I didn't. Um, I was actually it's a long story and I won't go into it here, but I'm I'm one of those TBAs or um, and it's an interesting story because I had to make some choices uh, when given an opportunity to take on a major project and um, opted to do that, which has you know resulted in a lot of what we're doing today. But but no, I, I was tenured and then I was part of a 
a process of the campus closing. So I had an opportunity to stay in the university, but I was approached by Senex to work on this education project, which actually had its roots, uh, if you will, really back to the Rochdale pioneers. And the concept was that you would provide funding for education, as the Rochdale pioneers did. When the Farmers Union organization started what originally was Farmers Union Central Exchange and later Senex, and then also Farmers Union Grain Terminal Association, which became GTA and then Harvest States, and now today is one company called CHS. Uh, they also had a provision in in the organization of the cooperative that funding would be directed back for education. And I was brought on board to work with that program, uh, which we then moved into the foundation, and we've been able to grow it significantly over the years. So, you know, it, it's been a... If you if you stand back and look at it, you can you can see what it looks like. But if you look at any one part of it, you may not see the connections. I, I think you know the the key thing that I would say today is, you know, I'm working for a company that's owned by 600,000 farmers and ranchers. About a hundred, almost 100,000 are direct members. The other, a uh, little over 500,000, are the owners of about 1,100 locally owned cooperatives across the U.S. If the average co-op had seven board members, that's over 7,000 individual local leaders who are serving on co-op boards. And we're in the food business. You know, we're helping feed people around the world and uh, and do it through a, an organization that's owned and controlled by farmers. And it's, it's a good place to be. You know, about five years ago, I'll, I'll be 68 this year. And so about five years ago, I figured out what I wanted to do when I grow up. Okay. Because uh, every time before that, when somebody asked me, I didn't, I didn't have an answer. And so through life, I've just said to strive for excellence in whatever you do. Sure. So right now, I will continue until I breathe my last breath to promote co-ops. Yeah, good. Develop housing co-ops. I taught 12 years, 11 in the college scene also, so we have something similar there. But I, I want to either create ongoing colleges department, like have a department of business, I like to have a department of uh, cooperative business, or to create a, maybe a community college to start off with that does certifications and two-year degree and maybe evolve into a four-year degree. But I would really like to see a PhD program where we get a lot of research on co-ops and what makes them function so well. I have some ideas of what makes them function so well once people uh, move from being an employee in a, in a worker co-op to an owner or in a housing co-op when they move attitudinally from a tenant to an owner. Tremendous things happen to make that business work extremely well. And I think a lot of research could go around that to find out why it does, whether that's psychology or sociology or business research. So that's what I want to do. So have you ever thought about in your the money that you're given for education or it is some kind of a program in colleges that has a degree in cooperative business? You know, we are funding many, many universities across the country that are involved in teaching about cooperatives in courses, um, endowed chairs, centers, work, you know, supporting professional growth opportunities, international travel, et cetera. I am not a great fan of trying to create a degree in cooperatives, I, I know there's some attempts and there's some of that going on because what, what I've seen when people have done that is, I, I'm not sure how to explain it, but 
maybe, maybe I can look at it. I'll just use CHS as an example. Okay. We're hiring a lot of people. We're growing very rapidly, and we're hiring a lot of people from the outside who didn't grow up in the country. In many ways, they're becoming our biggest co-op advocates, including our CEO, uh, who came from a publicly traded company, or our CFO, our head of HR, and basically our new attorney. They're coming from companies where they become very, they became very good at what they what they do, and they are choosing to come to work here because they like the idea that we're owned by farmers. And um, they really, these new outsiders have really recharged uh, the people here, the 10,000-plus people who work here, who in some ways at times have sort of taken it for granted. Or, you know, you go about your daily work, whether you're selling grain or, or uh, you know, any of the different functions, and, you, you know, they're... It isn't something you think about every day, but but it's one of those things where it's really gotten people very alive here. So now our HR Learning Academy is offering courses internally uh, for, for employees to take on cooperatives. Um, and then when we work with universities, you know, most most of the courses are taught through, you know, an ag econ program, but at Washington State University, we're doing it through a capstone course. There are a lot of different ways of doing it. And from my own experience teaching it and then funding it, it's almost like you you got to kind of wait or watch or try to create that teachable moment. And, yes, there are some people then who are going to get so engaged, and we need we desperately need them, by the way, who will become what I would call a co-op academic. But, you know, many of them actually get there by different routes, I, there are a number of people, ag economists, whose backgrounds are in resource economics or natural resources. And uh, in my mind, that's like a perfect fit to be teaching about cooperatives today because we really need to be looking at issues like sustainability, mm-hmm. uh, environmental issues. And I, you know, I'm speaking now, obviously, about agriculture. Um, there's a need for co-op attorneys. Uh, I, no, I should let me rephrase it. There's a need for attorneys who understand co-ops and care about it. But you know, typically, realistically, what those people are going to do is get their law degree from a you know an accredited legal, I mean, a law school. But what we're trying to do is help provide opportunities and financial support to maybe you know add a course on cooperatives or seminars or various types of things. So I I guess for me it's been more of, you know, what's the practical way about going at it? And uh, William, we have to take another break, and I really want to hear this for me, and I also want to get at the practical way to get more and more people involved in co-ops. So I'm liking this conversation, but we have to take another break. We'll be right back. Sounds good. Okay. News updates on the web at woldcnews.com. You know, the National Cooperative Bank sponsors this program to give you the benefits of cooperative business model. NCB's mission is to help cooperatives grow by supporting and being an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, placing special emphasis on serving the needs of communities that are economically challenged. And most co-ops, as we've talked about in the past on the program, 
they solve some community problem. Matter of fact, Papa Sin, who was on last year, said if there's no community problem, there's no need for a cooperative. And William Nelson, who's our guest today, has said that the co-op started in his family 100 years ago to solve problems, to solve problems of the farmers. Uh, and so they came together to work cooperatively to, to solve those problems. And now he has taught about cooperatives, and he's joined a company which we'll get to, but we were just talking before we left on the break about practical ways to educate the public about this cooperative business model. And, and my way was, my idea was creating some kind of degree program, but he's he's getting me to think about that by his experiences. So you want to continue on that conversation about practical ways of getting people to understand about cooperatives? Sure. I guess the point I was making, what I have trying to understand where people are in their learning, I guess, if you will. So if they're, you know, looking for a project to do in school or a paper to write in college or a job interview or whatever, is try to find out what it is they're looking for. And then say, okay, is there an opportunity to educate about cooperatives um, in this setting? So I think it really is parallel to the whole idea of starting a cooperative to solve a problem you know, an economic problem or, or whatever. And what I'm saying, the the problem is somebody's trying to, you know, get a job or do something and uh, say, okay, how can you introduce them to cooperatives? One example I would use recently is we hired a practicum from Washington University. This Our students, upper-level students, where they work with us for a semester on a, on a problem, we're trying to solve. And in this case, actually, we've done two of these, and they both turned out similar. We did one last year around sustainability. Uh, this one we did this year was around corporate social responsibility. And the students, you know, they get credit for this. Um, it's like a semester-long program where they, you know, work with us. They do a lot of research. They put together presentations, come in and talk to us. And the students who signed up for the practicum this year were interested in learning more about corporate social responsibility. They didn't have any interest in agriculture. They didn't have any interest in co-ops. They didn't know anything about either of those. Mm -hmm. But in doing their practicum, you know, they were business students, a couple of engineering students. They had to learn about us. So as they were, you know, doing all their research and interviews and all of that, the net result was they came back and did present to us an excellent uh, set of recommendations on how we can improve our corporate social responsibility efforts and communication about them. But the biggest takeaway was they all got interested in cooperatives hmm. and agriculture. And uh, in fact, they told us that whenever they had a report back to the other students at the university, everybody was interested in what they were telling them because it was all new to them. And kind of an ironical part, one of the programs we fund is a uh, or we fund international travel grants are typically about $10,000 mm-hmm. for students to travel internationally and study agriculture and, co-op- and cooperatives in other countries. So these Washington University business school students asked if they were eligible, and I said, well, you can, you can try. And uh, so they did. They submitted an application. We funded it. We thought there wasn't any way. I mean, they had all of the other ones we do. They've got faculty members and all of this institutional stuff around them, helping them out. So we really weren't very optimistic that these students would be able to pull it off. And about six weeks later, we started getting emails 
and text messages and social media information in the middle of the week from somewhere in South America. And these students had gone back and organized uh, a study tour uh, to South America to study cooperatives down there. And, you know, it was just one of those experiences. And, and again, I, I could give many, many other examples, but what we've been trying to do with our funding is look at trying to be a little ways out in front of where we think students are going to be and say, okay, when you start working on this, is there a cooperative solution to it? And, uh, and it works. You know, we have a lot of uh, great examples, I guess, to, to, that we could share from it. But you, they don't really need a degree in it. You know, they, for practical reasons, you know, people aren't going to hire you because you have a degree in cooperatives. You know, they're going to hire you because you're a good accountant or salesperson or merchandiser, whatever it is you do. But in my mind, there's always uh, an opportunity for whatever work you do to look at it from a cooperative business model point of view. So I guess that's, I don't know if that's very clear, but that's kind of the strategy that we're trying to use is, you know, figure out what's important in people's lives and then make sure they they understand that there is a, a resource for them that they might not have otherwise been told about. Well, I want to sum up what I hear you say, but with an experience that I have, and that is when the housing co-ops, I, I learned about co-ops because I'm a property manager in my day job, and I learned about co-ops and managing housing cooperatives. And what I really like is when there's a conference, the local regional uh, had a conference this past weekend, and I went there, and it's amazing that how much education gets transferred, how much knowledge gets transferred from one treasurer to another treasurer or from one president to another president, let alone the classes that they're in. So it's it's like uh, I call it just-in-time education, education that people can use every day in the management of our housing co-ops, and it's, it's how quick the education can transfer when there's a need for the knowledge, where if you're teaching in a classroom, the student may not see the need and they may not grasp it as well as when you're needing it. So I'm, I'm kind of hearing that in your practicums. So I, I would keep thinking about that and try to figure out how best, because the, the also the model you're talking about, I'm, I, how do you get that to the masses of the people and in the masses of the universities? So, because I'm want, i wanting everybody, at least in the U.S., if not in the world, to understand, to know about the corporate model first, and then secondly, to understand it. So let's go back and talk about CHS, though, because uh, we don't have very much. We only have another segment and a half here. And I'm, I'm really curious about CHS. You mentioned earlier about how it formed itself, but it's huge. And so can, can you talk a little bit more about what you all do, what CHS does? Sure. Um, again, we really have two uh, related threads to our background. One, as I indicated earlier, was the formation in the 1930s by farmers and ranchers who needed to find a new source of energy. Uh, they needed to buy products instead of raise it, which ironically, sort of coming full circle today because, you know, we've, we're involved in renewable fuels as well as fossil fuels and you know, we've been marketing gasohol and ethanol for 40 or 50 years, and, and farmers are growing fuel today. But, you know, that was really what we would call the supply side. So on that, you know, it, it's uh, it's energy. Uh, diesel fuel is primarily the biggest product, but propane, natural gas, gasoline, all of that. And then agronomy supplies for growing crops. The other side of the company really was the marketing side, and that historically was the harvest state's. So, and again, it was many of the same farmers. So we market grain around the world, 60 or 70 countries. 
And people like buying from us, especially in Asia, because we're owned by farmers. We process soybean oil particularly, but also uh, confectionery, sunflower seeds, um, et cetera. We do this you know, ourselves and through joint ventures. In order to keep the markets that we've developed mm-hmm. for our farmers' products, we need to source grain from other countries because uh, we don't have enough just from the U.S. Plus, you know, buyers around the world want, you know, they want choices. So uh, we actually source uh, a number of grains out of South America and Australia and Ukraine. When you put it all together, uh, I think we're about, on a Fortune 100 list, we would be about number 62 or something. And there are people who will say, well, how can you be a cooperative if you're so large? And I guess the way we would explain it is it's sort of relative, I guess, if you will. If you look at in the grain industry and our competitors, um, you know, there are, you know, basically four or five large grain companies that are the dominant players. We happen to be one that's owned by farmers. You know, another one here in town in the Twin Cities is actually a private company. Others are publicly traded, but we provide an opportunity for individual farmers to, to compete in the same playing field as these other huge companies. On the energy side, uh, we're basically based in rural communities. We have, I don't know, maybe it's between 1,500 and 2,000. I'm not sure the number mm-hmm. of you know convenience stores, and we own refineries, pipelines, all of that. And you know, we're not the, by any means the largest energy company in the country by a long ways. But out in rural communities, we're caught quite often the major player. Uh, if you come, go across the Midwest, the Dakotas. Western Minnesota, you know, you'll find uh, Senex gas station in many, many towns. And, you know, the, you know, I guess our basic point is that in a global economy, which um, agriculture is very much a part of, there certainly ought to be an opportunity for farmers to be part of it, owners of it. So, you know, we're providing that opportunity to them. I, I should mention that we in many ways are a very traditional cooperative, uh, but we also do a lot of different innovative things. Our board is made up of 17 farmers. We're all active farmers. Uh, we actually have a preferred stock offering uh, that trades on NASDAQ, uh, which has been a very helpful way to help finance uh, the company. The preferred stock pays a dividend. We, pay, we generate the funds to pay the dividends from earnings from non-members you know, in the petroleum, you know, um, people in towns and commercial companies who, you know, buy buy fuel from us, for example. Uh, but the preferred stock does not have voting rights, um, and that's fine. You know, with the preferred stock uh, owners, uh, you know, they can trade it on NASDAQ, provides a, you know, a source of income, but um, the ownership of the company is still completely in the hands of the you know, the 600,000 farmers and ranchers. That's fascinating the way you've been able to bring in capital by having a stock traded on the on the NASDAQ, but they don't have voting rights. Okay. Right, and, uh, okay. you know, I, I certainly can't, I can't become a salesman for it here on the radio, and, I, and I'm not qualified, but, you know, if you go back and you look at it, it's it's been a very steady preferred uh, dividend. You know, we... I think that one of the recent offerings that sold out in a few minutes, but again, that's, you know, I, you know, we file with SEC. We, we do all of those things that any large company would do. So in many ways, I mean, we really do operate like any large corporation. What do you trade on? What's your, 
Uh, I, I, I actually don't know. Okay. Um, it's CHS something, but I, I, I do want to really be explicit. I'm not qualified to. Oh, I got it. Basically, what we're talking about is the structure of your organization, not yeah. trying to sell stock. Yeah, no. you know, the, no. you know, we all know the proper legal disclaimers, and I'm just, I, I'm just trying to indicate that I think one of the things about cooperatives that's really intrigued me is their ability to evolve and flex. And we got to take another break, and we'll be right back. Please don't touch your dial. We'll be right back. News updates on the web at WOLDCnews.com. Welcome back, everybody. We've been talking about cooperatives and a very large cooperative, the largest we have ever talked about on the program. But I would quickly go back and explain that a cooperative is any business. Any business that you can think of could be a cooperative. Normally, if it's owned by the employees, it's called a worker cooperative. And if it's owned by the people that use the services uh, of the cooperative products and services, it's called a consumer cooperative, such as housing co-ops or credit unions. But then there's the cooperatives that market their products together, sell their products together, and it's called a marketing cooperative. Or if they buy products, uh, called a purchasing cooperative. So here you have farmers in uh, CHS that have come together to buy product, to make product, and to sell product together. So it's a very interesting piece, and it's a very, very large. How large is CHS in terms of sales or employees? We have about 11,000 employees, and uh, revenue about or sales of about $40 billion. Our earnings have been about um, around a billion. I've got to think about that here a bit. But, yeah, we're, we're pretty good-sized. Um, we're very diversified. You know, keep in mind that we're in agriculture. We're based in rural communities. So, you know, issues like weather and drought and hail and all of those are critical parts. I mean, all of the things that really make uh, agriculture a very, well, interesting, but also uh, it's a risky business. I was going to say risky. It's a lot of money to get started these days, and we're, you know, very concerned about how do we support the next generation of farmers um, obviously, uh, food safety, food security, um, all of those things are very important to us. Uh, environmental uh, concerns are important to us. They're very important to our farmers. So that's really, um, I, you know, I, I guess where I was going with that is that we, in addition to the, the grain marketing and the energy uh, businesses, we have extensive operations in like risk management and company called CHS Capital, which provides uh, funding for uh, for co-ops, uh, insurance, um, membership training, and all those types of things that are, you know, um, part of part of what it takes to be successful today. Well, forty million dollars is forty billion. I'm sorry, <laughs> it's a lot of money. So in sales. And I and we talked about the the third principle, members' economic participation, where members will normally have to pay something to get in, and they and they get dividends or patronage back. I was reading somewhere where you've given a couple billion dollars back in patronage in the last five years. Is that yeah? Right? That, that sounds right. Again, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I I think just uh, this spring it was over five hundred million or something, and. If you if you dig deeper into it, um, a lot of that is in cash. Uh, this year or maybe last year, we started offering 
some of it, uh, some of the patronage also back in um, preferred stock, which then enabled the local co-ops uh, or individual farmers um, to be able to, to sell it for cash if they wanted to, but they also had the option, of course, of keeping it. Uh, we've been able to uh, reduce our equity redemption period significantly. Uh, again, uh, for your listeners who are familiar with uh, agricultural co-ops, that often can be a problem where, you know, it becomes, it can get to be very lengthy decades even before your equity can uh, be redeemed. But I, I'm not sure. I th it seems like we're now down between about 10 or 12 years. It varies, you know, from year to year, but uh, we've been able to uh, be very current in Again, in agriculture, one of the challenges we have is uh, the average age of farmers is in the high 50s, I think, and um, it costs a lot of money to get engaged in farming for many people and stay engaged. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, we're not only providing them, our owners, with a place to buy supplies, if you will, and to market their crops and maybe to get insurance and you know, lending money and all of those sorts of services, managing risk. I mean, those are obviously staples. If, if we can't do that, then there wouldn't be any point in existing. But we've been able to also grow the company and also to uh, return a significant amount of our earnings back, uh, back to them consistently uh, year after year. And again, you know, it is a year-by-year -year, uh, decision by the board of directors, but we've been able to do it uh, quite quite well for quite a while, and obviously are doing everything we can to make sure we, we're going to be financially solid and well-run and relevant and all of those sorts of things that business, any kind of business has to be. Has to be. Most of our listeners are going to be urban. Um, they're not going to understand farming. Maybe some people have migrated here from the south. They came from a farm. We've also had the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which is a co-op in the in the right. southern states, um, on the program a couple of times, and that's mainly black farmers, smaller black farmers, African American-owned farmers who band together for the same reasons that you all did up in the Twin Cities, up in the in the northern part of the state. Um, and we've we've actually been very involved with the Federation, uh, Ralph Page, and now Cornelius and the folks. Uh, over the years, uh, through education programs that we have helped support, uh, Cornelius and I have been the co-chairs of the co-op roundtable that they do as part of their annual uh, meeting each year. And one of the things that I've, you know, become aware of, uh, you know, the models are different in different parts of the country. But uh, we're working with them in Tuskegee on uh, curriculum on cooperatives down there, and uh, it's a great organization that. Even though it's not, I mean, we're we're primarily upper Midwest, and uh, you know, we do have op we we do business really across the whole country, but we're we're primarily a Midwest and sort of down the south along the Mississippi River and more to the southwest. But um, been very impressed with the federation for the many years that that I've known them and worked with them. Well, I was going to ask you the question you answered before I asked you, because the seventh principle says. Oh, well, the sixth principle is cooperation among cooperatives, and I was wondering if you were working with them, and, and you are. But um, the, the, the seventh one is concern for community. You've talked a, a lot about that in terms of environmental issues, um, and I, I 
I would imagine um, that you're you're really really concerned about weather and what's happening yeah. uh, globally to to our weather and how we can impact on that. Um, Dame Pauline Green, who's the president of the International Cooperative Alliance, said uh, that um, co-ops in their DNA is social responsibility, so there was no need for a Department of Social Responsibility. But it sounds like if you're working with the schools and so forth, you are looking at how you can do social responsibility better, and I also heard you say, and communicate it better. Yeah, I I really appreciate that because I think in some ways sometimes – what you just said about Dane Pauline Green uh, is true, but it, it sometimes almost becomes a liability because we we start to take it for granted. You know, we think, well, we're a co-op, so therefore we must be okay. community-minded. But you know, that that doesn't isn't always the case. And so, one of the things that we're trying to do here in our unit of corporate citizenship and the CHS Foundation, granted, our main activity is providing funding, but you know, it's also um, helping people to think about about this. So, you know, we you know we run our volunteers and programs. Uh, we get involved in uh, communities in a lot of different types of ways. And you know, you just can't take it for granted that just because we're a co-op that we're we're automatically doing that. We have to uh, you know we have to be conscious, <laughs> conscientious, and conscious about mm-hmm. it. And then the other thing that's so exciting is that young people today are, at least as I encounter them, um, coming in as new employees and coming out of college, there's just a very, very genuine interest in, you know, CSR or whatever, whatever, however you wanted to describe it. And so that's probably the, the most optimal point for us to connect about what cooperatives are is that there is a connection um, you know, we we feel that, and, and we've seen this happen m- many, many times where young people, and again, by that I'm sort of referring to sort of the college age mm-hmm. crowd of uh, will get attracted to working for a cooperative uh, because of this. But, you know, it, it's not only just not taking it for granted, but we also have to communicate it. Right. Um, and that's one of the, I guess that's probably actually the challenge is, you know, you think people will, you know, we should just understand this. I mean, it's just natural, but sometimes people have to be uh, educated, <laughs> if you will, and told <laughs> and communicated with. And uh, it sort of goes back to the beginning of our conversation that you can't, if you neglect it, you know, people have a lot of other things to think about. So we need to be more proactive in telling our story. We only have a minute left. So you have any comments? Well, question. Do you like what you do and what you've done in your life? I love it every day. <laughs> and I, you know, I feel like I know that I, I can help make a difference, um, you know, and I hope everybody feels that way. And, you know, obviously there are times when you don't know if you're making a difference or not, but cumulatively over the years, and, you know, I have the benefit of seeing, especially what we've done with universities. There are many, many universities now that are offering courses, they're offering multiple courses, they're working with two-year colleges, four-year colleges, and uh, I go back to my beginning where all I was trying to do was teach a course at a two-year college on cooperatives, and uh, I guess I never would have imagined that to see what's going on. One one of the programs we fund through the National Farmers Union or with them is a college conference on co-ops. We've been doing this for 20 years. We get 
about 150 college students every year that spend. We got we got to cut it off. And I thank you. I heard I hear about the love that you have for Corps. Thank you for being on the program today. Hey, thank you. All right. Bye now. 1450 WOL.